Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means. We're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Rob Stroud, Principal Analyst at Forrester to discuss continuous delivery. Welcome, Rob. Welcome all. Good day, as I would say. So, Rob, we're at a time and place where customers have an expectation that companies can move fast, that digital has enabled them to be able to stand up features, change experiences on a dime based upon a changing whim of a customer or changing expectation. But that's actually not the reality in the ground for the vast majority of companies out there. So what is what is the distance between the expectation and the reality? How would you describe that? Yeah, so it's really uh, an interesting state of play that we're in in the market today. Business today has to go fast. They have no choice. They're being disrupted everywhere. And we all think it's as easy as going and using a cloud service or just adopting a new technology, and that's what we've been used to. But actually, it's not true. It's really about a people, process, and culture change. And we have to change all those aspects. And if we don't, we're never going to get velocity, which is the term we use in the industry, of course. But uh, we just want to go fast. We want to deliver new features and functions because let's face it, uh, I don't want to wait for my package to deliver. I just want it to turn up. Right. You want the outcome. I want the, the results. I don't yep. want the pain. So in the concept of continuous delivery has a lot of its heritage in product management. The idea that if I'm running a product, a digital product, there's an expectation, there's a constant refreshment of that product, a dot release, there's a constant debugging, whether I'm thinking of it as a minimal viable product or what have you, it's just out there and evolving on a persistent basis. That's sort of the origin of continuous delivery. That's exactly right. The The origin of continuous delivery is the fact that if you think about the psychology of just the way we absorb things and the way we're even taught in school, it's far easier to learn in small increments and build on them all the time. The same is true in using technology. If we can add small incremental pieces constantly, we actually solve the problem of, you know, deep learning and deep education and deep documentation because people can pick up that uh, new feature or function that we're delivering and use it quite simply. And the other aspect of it is becoming very user-centric in the way we deliver things. And what do I mean by user-centric? If you need to read an instruction book, you failed. If you cannot look at a, a you know, a screen on your, your uh, iPad or your iPhone and immediately use it and be profitable. I know about me, I delete it. And that's kind of the the gold standard now for what we have to deliver. The model that has existed and probably still exists for many is that the IT organization is a distinct thing and the product organization is a distinct thing. And they might meet, you know, they might have interfaces, they might have relationship managers that go between them, but they're distinct. But your argument is that it's one organism because the, the underlying technology infrastructure, the business technology that's within the firm is, is delivering these experiences, which is what's bringing the brand and bringing the value to the customers flowing in and out. Exactly. And what we see today is that you can have separate business relationship managers and separate product teams and separate IT teams. And then you've got an issue of translation. They're all speaking different words and different languages. So what we see organizations who are really getting into continuous delivery do is merge those people into one team. Now, we in the industry call it two pizza teams. You know, how how many people can feed two pizzas? Well, you know, I can eat one of my own. So, you know, <laughs> maybe we need three pizzas. But uh, the reality of it is you're putting the product owner, often the business person in that team, you're putting that with your developers and you're also putting it with people who are going to understand how to deploy that technology as well and leverage it and use it. And what you create is a, a mini ecosystem that can own the product, a bit like building a car. We, we made this amazing revelation in car manufacturing a few years ago. 
where if you had somebody own the product from beginning to end, the quality increased. And you put the things in the car that people wanted. Because the person owning it was gearing itself to the outcome, it's, not necessarily to the mechanics of it. Yeah, I mean, you want to you sell the car, right? And, and my success factor as an individual is more cars sold. And the same is happening in IT. We're seeing this fundamental shift. And you see it through organizations we call them unicorns like Netflix, right, that actually created a product, disrupted a market, killed Blockbuster. And, you know, though people who own those products at Netflix are busy about creating net new products that you and I will consume. And our experience is watching whatever we see on Netflix, not the actual process of creating it. Typical IT person cares about how to do it. Well, actually, no, you've got to care about the product. Right. But in that example, Netflix is a digital native firm, right? So when we're talking about enterprises as a whole, that's, that's like a best case scenario. Can we talk about those firms that are sort of struggling making that, that leap to continuous delivery or thinking of technology and business in that way? Now, I knew you'd have to hit me with the hard question. Sorry. Sorry. You know, if you think about it for a moment, uh, everybody is now delivering digitally. Should be. Everybody's yeah. product is digital. If you're in banking and you're not delivering digital products, now you're not in banking anymore. Now, some would argue, oh, but, you know, XYZ Bank went and bought a whole series of branches. That's just part of their persona that they're delivering and having a physical presence, part of their brand. But today we need to transition and deliver digital products. And so this is where the, uh, the challenge is for most of us. If I've been delivering things in my old-fashioned way for years, I've got that institutional knowledge to deliver that old-fashioned way. I need to actually build products in smaller increments. I need to deliver them uh, electronically. And I need to take the way the consumer will use it, whoever that is. And we need to model that behavior. And we talk a lot about that in the industry. And this is the hard jump. It's actually going from the product manager knows best to actually the customer knows best, whoever that customer is. And I think that's the, the fundamental shift. Now, I love an example of, you know, there's lots of unicorn examples. Netflix, you'd even say Tesla is a unicorn example, right? But the reality of it is that if you look at just the way we buy normal things, like go to the store today and buy something, every store has implemented a digital presence. And they're supporting that digital presence with digital marketing and things that we call buyer journeys, where you understand what the buyer buys. And this is a really interesting shift because it changes. How do you build that if you're just an IT person and you don't know what the business does? It's really difficult. I think that's been one of the interesting conversations that have been underway for the last couple of years because the argument has been for a while that the CIO and te their, their technology teams need to become more or sort of business-centric or care more about business value. But it's always sort of premised on them operating alone or them operating under direction of. Your argument is very different. They're operating with and that the product teams and technology teams are one and the same. So it may be there's two pizzas or maybe there's just a very different calzone sitting on it as well, which is because the conversation has less to do with order taking or build it this way or trying to understand feature function and much more about interpreting a competitive landscape and interpreting customer, their existing customers and new customers' expectations and what they value and then understanding how that plays itself out in a set of a, like a release roadmap kind of thing. Yeah, and that's uh, – you talk about release roadmaps, right? In the old days, we'd have this release roadmap mapped out for the next year, two right. years, five years, right? Uh, having been a product manager for a long time in my life, I can tell you a product manager uh, – product roadmap is good for about three minutes. 
right? It's a series of uh, things you might want to do. And that's where the business insight is critical. You know, I've got this list of things that we, we might want to do, right? And if we can roll out small pieces of feature and then experiment, you know, we roll out a new feature, a new screen, a new tool, a new way of doing banking, and uh, it's not well adopted. We can go back and uh, ideate on that or, or transition it into something that you're going to deliver. And having been a product manager for many years, I can tell you that the original spec is never what you end up delivering. Sure. Right. It, it evolves. It's and your hypothesis, right? And you're testing along the way and making improvements. So one of the challenges with that is the goodness of a roadmap, other than certainty and comfort, was the idea that you had the time to test something before you put it in market because the customers were going to be harsh in their judgment. Has the, have the customers evolved their expectations? So not the, not the IT, not the product teams, but the customer themselves to say, I expect products to be released that are imperfect, incomplete, and I'm almost, I'm almost a walking beta team right now for them, and I'm going to accept those terms along the way because there is sort of a conflict between I may exit the firm upon a bad experience. Well, an incomplete or imperfect product can be seen as a bad experience. You know, as we think through the the user adoption, there's a demographic changing in the marketplace, right? Uh, clearly, there's an expectation that if technology doesn't work properly because the, the ideation cycles or the cycles to change are so small now, just wait, it'll change. And I lived this with uh, three millennials in my own uh, house. And uh, they're at it. They're, in fact, the worst problem I have is if the Wi-Fi is not working, all right? It, and it's your just, fault? Yeah, it's my fault. <laughs> But I, you know, I have a 11 year old grandson who's tech support, so that's okay. <laughs> but but uh, the reality of this is that, you know, if something breaks, basically the attitude is just wait a little while, it'll be, it'll be fixed. And you give the feedback back and real time feedback. I mean, if you get on a plane flight tomorrow and they give you ice in your drink, I'm Australian, no ice in my drinks, please. And I complain. Somebody will redo it. The same is true with technology. They're just going to put their hand and drive the ice out. <laughs> that's what I'd do anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's a very important principle because the idea would be that when you release, you have to be right back on top of it, that it's okay if there's a slight miss. Yeah, there's no set it, it and forget it type mode. Right. Yeah. The issue is if it's MVP and out, you're in deep trouble. The issue is you've got to stay with that thing until you get to a place where you believe that experience is differentiated, or at least meets the ex- the expectations of the customers. If the, your experience is not differentiated and it's not appropriate, your customers will tell you. They'll tell you either by not using your product or service. They'll tell you by using the online mechanism you give them to give feedback. Or they'll just comment, just look at social media, right? And you'll see it. I mean, you know, you can look at, uh, you know, release of a new piece of technology and if people don't like it, you just look on Twitter, it's there. And I think this is the... The other part of this, product teams have to be very savvy and, and listen to what the market is telling them. They actually have to take feedback. And that's a really key change. It's happening in the market right now. So it's not just the product teams or tech teams. You're, you're talking about that marketing, whatever is in the front end of the business, whether that be social listening or actually understanding the use of the product, whether they're using it, whether they're banning it, those instantaneous, almost daily feeds you're getting are feeding the next, the next round. Absolutely. This is all part of uh, the, the what we in the industry call backlog. Yep. Right. And every piece of uh, intelligence goes into the backlog. It becomes documented so that we understand it, so that we can see it. And the value of having the business in the product team, and this is a key point that can't be missed, 
is that the business person can understand the sensitivities. Yep. And they can clearly say, okay, this was priority 80. Well, actually now it's priority one. So we're going to change what we do. We're real time. We're going to actually leave that feature. We'll park it over there and we're going to create this new piece here. And actually it's pretty critical to our success. So we're just going to not do anything else in this release. We're just going to deliver that feature. And we see that happen. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about bugs. You can actually fix bugs very quickly. Not that they should escape, but all sufficiently. But you don't have to wait for a form release. You don't have to wait two weeks to fix a bug. This could be an intraday kind of function where once I see it, I fix it. You can wait two minutes, maybe if you've got a really good pipeline to test it. So this has good written all over it. This talks about being customer-centric. This talks about being fast, being agile. And I'm sure, and part of this conversation deals with the efficiency question, which is I'm spending more time doing the right thing and tuning myself to exactly the thing that matters most to our customers. So I assume there's a lot of buy-in to DevOps or continuous delivery, whatever it might be. So when someone decides, okay, I'm in, what, what, what happens? What happens next? Oh, when we buy in, we've got a major culture change. And this is one of the actual, you know, when you're talking culture, you're talking a significant way of changing the way we do things. And that's why we see this, uh, what I call the adoption lag. Yeah, it's a good idea. Let's do it, right? right. I also know that running every day is good. Yeah. Yet yeah. I don't run every Ambition day. Ambition versus reality. Reality starts setting yeah. in. So running every day means that I actually have to get a pair of running shoes and some socks and other bits and pieces. You know, I've got to have my automatic detection of my pulse and all that sort of stuff because I'm a geek. But uh, the reality of it is that we also have to change the way we deliver IT. We've got these years and years of silos. We have trained our people to be to learn, to be educated, to be functionally measured in silos. Yep. We've got to break that down. That is a fundamental culture change that requires, you know, use your own adjective, guts, glory, whatever, of management to actually make that change. So what we see people do is start in small teams. They'll start in small pockets and add some piece of value to the company to prove it out. And going at scale is a fundamental organizational change. And I hate to say it, organizations tell me there are casualties on the way. Some people can't do it. Yeah. I mean, it does remind me of sort of like the, you know, these two factions that are at war, sort of the Northern Ireland and Ireland or whatever happened in the Middle East. And you have these little pockets of people that decide, you know, we can do this. We can actually form teams composed of different religions, but they have to do that to your point in small pockets because it's so inherently tribalistic. To your point, there's a different language for things. There's different words, different priorities. There's inherent suspicion of each other. Am I winning? Am I losing? I mean, all those things have to play out. So you do have to prove it in these small pockets. Who has made that transition or in that example? Like, can you talk about a firm who's who's sort of carved out that small team, kind of tested it, and then that becomes the majority of how they do business? Yeah. So we're talking to a lot of uh, customers now, a lot of end users, a lot of enterprises who are doing that in the middle of that transition right now. You know, one of the, the best known ones publicly, uh, you know, organizations like ITV out of the UK, they've made that transition. They're on that journey. Capital One is one that everybody yeah. puts in front of us, right? Sure. They've, they've gone from no physical presence as a bank to a physical presence as a bank. And then you look at other uh, financial organizations right now. Well, every organization we talk to is in the middle of going from that phase of testing and piloting and prototyping to widespread scale. And that's the hard part. That's the culture part because you're going to do things like you mentioned the word trust. I actually have to trust you, right? Now, it's a really interesting concept, right? 
you're not out for my job. You're not right. out for anything. Well, actually, no, you're not. We're all here as a team. And if we, you know, it's all ships rise on, a, on the tide together. And that's the thing that we've got to change the culture. You know, one of the things I tell people is throw away individual performance reviews. Gone. Get rid of them. And see, organisations are successful are doing that now. So if we, we think about, uh, you know, this notion of trust and this notion of changing the way we, we, we uh, remunerate our people, mm. one of the things we see these forward-thinking organisations doing are p- paying performance at the team level. So if the team succeeds, they succeed together. If they fail, they fail together. And that's a really fundamental change, but that's what Toyota did. Toyota changed the whole manufacturing process. If you produce good cars as a team, we remunerate the whole team. And if that's where we need to go to. We need to actually be focusing people on the outcomes, on, on giving them, you know, control, decision-making authority, and then allowing them to control their destiny. And if they make good decisions, great. If they make bad decisions, let's give them the coaching and encouragement and skills and tooling they need to get better. So you, you hear firms standing up these innovation centers. And what strikes me about them is they're physically separated from the business. They're actually saying, let's send these people away so that they can learn to operate differently in or a different environment. Or they crop up in, you know, Silicon yeah. Valley or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Then they have to come back. So a lot of this happens outside the main of the company. How do they come back and teach people who've said, hey, what happened over there? Because I didn't experience it. How does the rest of the team take that on? Because it's one thing to do it with, you know, a distinct team in a distinct physical space with a distinct set of expectations and all of a sudden bringing it back to the mothership is a very different kind of phenomenon. Oh, I'm so pleased you're talking about innovation centers. Uh, I've had good experience with, with uh, uh, one particular uh, organization who's doing this who has a 250-year culture. And, uh, you know, they realized the only way they could, and it's a global company, the only way they could change their culture is to actually pick up three teams each quarter or each half year and pull them out of their day-to-day jobs, completely releasing them from what they do. And they bring them across Silicon Valley and uh, (laughs) they bring them across and they make them work together on a new project prototype concept using lean methodologies and lean techniques, totally different to the way this organisation has operated for 250 years. And at the end of it, they've actually got deliverable products have gone to market, net new ideas. One of them is actually making them, a, you know, it's a high profit item that's come out of one of these innovation teams. And your question was about uh, what they do when they take them back. The reality is as they go back, they find it hard to fit back in. Sure. Really hard. But it's really interesting that uh, my experience with these teams as they go back is their colleagues glean around them to, to mm. understand the experience. And, uh, you know, most of them actually stay and then continue to change the culture in that local area. And it's, it does take a few life cycles to, you know, in terms of uh, generations to actually make those sort of changes. But the reality is they also lose a few. Sure a they few do. just say we can't handle this anymore and move on. Yeah, I mean it, it does seem like it has to be a terrifically intentional act, meaning if I ship a team out to do – even if I bring it to market as you described it and I bring it back, there has to be a designed moment that says the people that I just shipped back out and I'm bringing back in emulate them. Because that's going to be the norm. And there has to be something very intentional because osmosis either doesn't happen or it takes too damn long for it to really you know, make a difference in the company's fate. I actually think this back to your former statement, uh, former question about how we change organizations. And 
you know, I believe what we're going through now with continuous delivery, DevOps, whatever you want to call it, is actually a generational change. The next generation who come out of university or college, or if you look at some of the, the tech companies now, they're not even waiting for you to go to college. They're hiring you out of high school and bringing you in. And that's actually starting to become an accepted practice in IT. You bring the people straight in, you get them engaged. They're learning far more better coding skills and IT skills at high school now anyway. And then you, you know, a, a value add is you train them, right? You put them through university or college or whatever, and that creates a loyalty factor, which is quite nice. But and it's a parent's dream not to pay for college, but have the person start earning the keep early on. That's got to be, that's Victor's a win-win. making win. mental notes right now. It's a tech <laughs> job or the U.S. Army. It's your choice. <laughs> So if you think about it, though, it's a generational change. So it's not going to happen overnight, but it will become the norm. And it's very interesting because, you know, I do a lot of discussions with uh, uh, senior IT management. And uh, there's also a fear factor because part of doing this well is flattening the management structure, you know, getting rid of these VPs, SVPs, EVPs, LVPs, and any other VP you can find. But as you flatten that structure, we're actually getting more people at the coalface. And one of the things, if you do this right, is you can actually take mundane jobs, replace it with automation and take that headcount and apply it to value-adding roles. And that's one of the secrets that we've seen organizations do. You know, you look at the banks that are really starting to transition and, and compete with the fintechs. And what they're doing is taking mundane roles, getting them out of IT, taking that headcount and putting it in product teams to create competitive differentiation. And what's wonderful about that is if you look at it strictly from a talent acquisition, talent management question, the, the, the non-sort of tech native, the non-digital native firms are disadvantaged as it relates to talent because high-end talent wants to work for high-end firms. And often those firms don't have the talent. So they, they got to be able to, to break into that equation. They, and if, as you described it, they're, they're actually breaking in by setting these teams aside and actually creating that direct opportunity it, has a, it should have a byproduct on getting talent to stay or bringing talent in. That's a great statement. In fact, a uh, great example here in the uh, Boston area is an organization that's actually set up its, its new continuous delivery practice as a separate IT organization. And they bought in some initial talent and started getting momentum going. And now they've got a situation where the people who are in the uh, older organization supporting the mature, the, the, the business that doesn't change. They're all putting their hand up saying, yeah. we want to go over. What's, what's going on over there, right? Yeah. We want to join. We want to be part of the party. So one way to think of continuous delivery is I'm using the same technology. I'm just going faster and I'm working with an ecosystem. The other way to look at it is I'm finally really confronting the realities of AI, internet things, other things that are coming in and not just changing the tech stack, but fundamentally changing the experiences and the way the operations work. I mean, this has got to operate at the same kind of pace because there's a very much a sense and respond or a test-learn cycle that's highly iterative. So one of the interesting questions that comes up a lot as we talk to uh, organizations and, and enterprises is this change, this move to velocity, is fa- having them face the fact that they have significant technical debt in their organizations. What do we mean by technical debt? Great example from this morning. I've got an organization where I'm running my application that I wrote 30 years ago. And in that time, all I've done is basic glue and patching. Yeah, kept it fed. Not even fed. I've just kept it on life support, right? And, and cheap life support at that. And the reality of it is that how do you take that forward? And as you look at that, the answer is actually you can't. 
you've actually got to go back and look at first principles and ask questions like, is this technology relevant? Can we even use it anymore? Should we use it? Can I get skills for it? And these are questions we get asked every single day. And the technology is moving so fast if we talk about cloud and serverless and uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, all the good buzzwords. But the reality of these technologies are that they're real now and they're actually at scale so we can look at them. So, for instance, if you want to mine information to understand customer insights to see where trends and patterns are happening, we can do that. The scale is there, the processing's there. We have no shortage of data. We have shortage of intelligence on that data. And that's actually the step most organizations are at now. They're saying, okay, we're doing things faster. We're getting more information. Now, how do I mine that and create competitive advantage out of it? How do I actually understand what my customers are thinking before they're thinking it, or at least as they're thinking it would be nice, right? And this is really an interesting uh, juncture at in the industry. But it's such an important architectural point because technology debt can live for a long time because people are, they're sort of, unintentionally enamored with sunk cost. I built it, it works, I should keep it going because it feels painful to do the next thing. And they don't sunset as fast. But your argument is that the fast evolution of the architecture is going to impose upon any organization the idea that a product, just like you sunset a product when it comes out of its life, you're going to be sunsetting some of these technologies and just continuing moving along. And it's such an important architectural point to this. Yeah, and this is why we see widespread adoption and, you know, the industry now accepts cloud computing, right? It's, for some, it's a buzzword. For others, it's a way of life. Because the reality of that is I don't actually need to worry about the infrastructure stack anymore. I don't have the debt. I don't have it. I have, but I do still have application debt, right? And and so we've, you know, probably 30% of the markets address the, the technology debt by moving to cloud and more is coming. But I've still got that application debt. And that's where we need to look at next. So one of the things I always share with uh, people is when you go and build a net new application, you better identify the useful lifespan of that application and write it down then and there, understanding that uh, it will have an end of life. It doesn't live forever. So you're managing the application like a product at that point in time because you have an envisioned sunsetting of the product or the regeneration of the product at that point in time. Yeah. So like all products, every product has a useful lifespan. Every model of a car, useful lifespan. In fact, cars are being disrupted. We'll never own them anymore, right? We'll just get a later software update and be good to go. But the reality of this is that we need to understand that this is a different way of going about doing it. And we're only at the beginning of that now. So if you go and invest, I don't know, X dollars in a banking package because you're a bank, you've got it for, you know, five or 10 years. Well, when I built a banking package earlier in my career, we thought we had it forever. And, and that expectation has to be changed and has to be set from the very beginning. Is that mindset prevalent today? It's prevalent amongst those who are kind of emerging out of the cocoon. Sure. You know, young people especially. The reality of it is they have that mindset from the get-go. Everything's disposable, right? Right. And uh, I think that's the attitude we're, we're just getting to. And, and if you think about the way we're buying uh, cloud computing on an OPEX model, yet most organisations' budgets are still set on a CapEx basis. So we're in that change. So not only do we need to change IT people and business people, we need to get to the CFO and we need to get the CFO to change the way they're accounting for budgets. And this is actually an area that I don't think we've succeeded in yet. Before we open up this podcast, we have a conversation aside and you are getting kind of fussy about a concept, which is maturity versus binary. And 
in it, you said you can't do this in stages. This has to be a hard cut. You either are doing it or you're not doing it. And even if you're the way you described the the 250 year old firm, which is they decided to do it, but do it in a certain way. But it wasn't like they're sort of leaning in that direction. They had to do a hard cut. So is that sort of the guidance that you have, which is don't try to evolve slowly because you just can't go fast enough. Sort of just start doing it kind of thing. Well, it's it's really an interesting play, and we have this discussion every day. Uh, so, I think once you've made up your mind to go, you do your pilots, do your proof of concepts, you realize it works, then it's time to go. You know, it's it's go time, and you've really got to just get on there and do it, and you've got to realize and take the pain. Now, you cannot transition every one of your employees overnight. We know that, all right, but you can bring them along, and you've got to have a strategy for that. Well, to your point on the teams that go away and come back, there has to be a beacon for them to follow. There has to be something that was reasonably successful for that they say, if I do it, there's something at the end of the race that I get. It's not as if I'm just taking a, a leap over the chasm and I just don't know what's on the other side. Oh, we're not taking leaps? Oh, jeez, my job is over. Uh, <laughs> no, the reality of it is that we do need to have a beacon. I totally concur. And that's why we we see organizations do pilots. They do prototypes, pilots. They'll pick a new application, they'll go, they'll do some learning. But at the end of the day, what really changes the culture is changing the way we, we, uh, we trust our people. We trust our people to make decisions. We trust that we're giving them the right skills. We trust their decision-making capabilities. We remove red tape. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of all those processes that they've got. If there needs to be, and a you problem, remove the tribes. I mean, the, the yeah. inherent tribal behavior of the you know the IT and product teams. You have to intentionally blow that up. You have to blow it up, and there, you know, as you remove those tribes, you're not trying to take away their jobs. You're just giving them net new skills to help them be more valuable. I mean, you know, we've been going for the last ten years talking about stop hugging service. You stop hugging your applications, for goodness sake! It's like you're you're here to be part of growing the organization, which is why the successful organizations I see change their goals to team goals. Right? This is they love your customer, not your server, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, Rob, we, we've talked a lot about speed and not speed for its own purposes, but the idea that that's what the market is imposing upon companies. And speed is going to force companies to think of the world differently and to act differently and to break up the tribes, as you described them, and start working as one single organism, sort of serving the customer in a very different kind of manner. So as, as firms sort of wrestle with that great idea, what does it mean to firms that sort of intellectually buy in they have a belief system around it, but, you know, there's a tough transition in front of them. You know, what it means is they need to really just uh, roll up the sleeves, get prepared to do the work and realise that they're going to have to address three areas. Culture, they are absolutely going to have to change their culture. They're going to have to support their staff, giving the culture changes they need. They are going to have to invest in tooling and technology, whether it's open source or not, they have to do that. And they also have to deliver everything they can as automation. They have to remove the manual steps. They have to free people up and they have to be prepared to change. You know, they have to be ultimately understanding that they're going to have to change on a constant and consistent basis and the journey is never over. It's going on forever. And it's love your customer, not your server. Absolutely. Love your customer, forget the server. Rob, thank you so much for your time today. It was great. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's prediction season. Download Forrester's 2018 predictions guide at for.com slash predictions. That's F-O-R-R dot slash predictions. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. 
and don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.